and welcome to another episode of Unpacking the Case. I'm joined today, as ever, by our Head of Legal Training, Richard Snape. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. And we're here to record a podcast following our recent webinar on at the end of November on repairs, service charges and cladding issues. Um, so we're going to go into a bit of detail behind a couple of cases in this area. And I think the first one we wanted to look at was Ravenseft and Davstone. Do you want yeah, to start with that one? It's one of the cases that we, uh, I didn't really mention, certainly not more than in passing. In the, in the webinar we did. And uh, it's uh, one of several cases um, on the repair side of things as opposed to the cladding issues, but it certainly brings in service charging cladding. And you'll read in the textbooks that uh, repairing covenants uh, require you to repair, which means putting good something that was once good and it's now bad. Uh, they don't require you to improve the premises. They don't require you to renew or rebuild or cure inherent defects. And this is one of several cases, which um, basically to some extent suggests otherwise. And I should stress before we perhaps get into the background facts that a lot of these cases are, uh, I know we were talking about service charges in a, in a podcast we did, and a lot of these cases are you know, expert witnesses on either side and the likes, and uh, not sort of pure law, if you like. Um, so would you like me to give you the background facts? Yes, please. Uh, it took place in Notting Hill in London, or Camden Hill, uh, to be precise, yeah, Notting Hill Gate. Uh, and it's a block of, uh, a 16-storey block of flats called Camden Hill Towers. Next to it is a four-storey uh, block of flats called uh, Camden Hill Flats. And uh, over the years, they've been sort of much litigated in terms of repairing obligations. Um, and the, the block was built between 1958 and 1960. And it's still about, uh, I think it was substantially refurbished some years ago, or way before this case. It's a 1979 High Court case, as I should have mentioned. And when it was built, uh, again, don't ask me about the details, but when it was built, um, it had a, a concrete uh, structure and uh, laid on top of the concrete was um, stone cladding, Portland stone cladding. Uh, not the type of cladding that's been in the news post Grenfell of late, you know, not the, the metallic stuff, which uh, the metallic composite, which is uh, causing chaos at the moment. But it's probably a good illustration of some of the problems that can, can go on. Uh, when the property was built, um, they didn't put in expansion joints to deal with the, the expanding of the, you know, the materials. As you'll remember from your physics studies, Lizzie, uh, that concrete and uh, stone have different coefficients of expansion. You remember absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the time, um, having expansion joints was not the norm. Um, uh, it's sort of, there was apparently a report in 1961 which sort of said, this is what you should be doing. Um, the landlord, I mean, the, the lease was. Uh, granted a long lease to, to um, Dabstone's predecessor in 1960. Dabstone was the tenant for Ravenseth, the landlord. Uh, and in 1973, when Dabstone had taken uh, an assignment at lease, uh, Ravenseth seemed to have noticed problems with this cladding in, in a perilous state in danger of falling off. Uh, and there was also, after investigation, problem with rusting of the steel framework as well. 
and uh, Dabston was responsible for repairs, but uh, refused to do anything about it, arguing this isn't disrepair, it's inherently defective, it's been bad from day one. And you can sort of see that argument. Um, but the, what then happened is that the landlords even said they uh, thought eventually that we better protect you know, this property and not wait for this you know, discussion between landlord and tenant. We'll take over control and the tenant can sort of foot some of the bill and then we can decide it later. Uh, the tenant paid half the early bill then just stopped paying. And the works were done and completed. And that's when the case arose. Um, what the tenants were arguing, amongst other things, is that uh, the um, the works had cost fifty five thousand pounds. Bearing in mind this is the nineteen seventies, and uh, included within that was five thousand pounds for these expansion joints, which weren't originally there. You've actually improved or cured an inherent defect. But the whole building was worth about three million pounds. And that was certainly a factor. Is that sufficient to, to renew the premises? What did the court say in this instance then? Well, it's quite a good case for you know, perhaps the non-lawyers to look at sort of uh, the history of this kind of argument. You do get cases going either way without any sort of uh, apparent reason on occasion. But they looked at starting off with some 19th century cases that I remember from years back in my studies at the law degree. There was one, for instance, a case called uh, Listerin, Lane and Nesham, which was a court appeal case from 1963, where the tenants uh, had to rebuild this, uh, or repair, I should say, this old property. And they had a repairing obligations and the landlord was wanting the tenant who was in such a perilous state that they wanted the tenant to knock down the house and start again basically rebuilding and uh, the court decided you didn't have to do that that's a renewal you know it's sort of a substantial amount of work so lord escher um said that a covenant to repair is not a covenant to put back in a better condition you don't have to improve but uh, there was another case, there were quite a few cases discussed, but there was another case called Lurcott and Wakeley and Wheeler, which I remember from his studies in 1911, Court of Appeal case, uh, which was all about uh, demolishing a wall on the side of your house and then rebuilding. The council had actually required it uh, because of the perilous state of this whole wall. And they said there that repair involves... Uh, uh, Lord Justice Buckley, that repair involves replacement of a subsidiary part. So you've always got this sort of question mark, are you repairing, you know, are you repairing a part of the house or are you renewing the wall? And in that particular case, they decided, you know, you are renewing, uh, you're repairing the part of the house, it's within a repairing covenant. The most sophisticated leases, commercial leases in particular, should be dealing with it, you know, repair includes renewal of a substantial part. What was the decision in this case? Uh, in this case, they decided, amongst other reasons, that because I don't think they liked the attitude of the tenants to some extent, but because of the fact it was only £55,000 uh, compared with a £3 million price to the property, uh, that would come within repairing covenants. And even if you are sort of I say curing inherent defects are actually partially improving the premises. It was only a small, if you like, improvement. Are there any other ways to require either landlords or tenants to improve, um, improve under these repairing covenants? Uh, yeah, um, 
well, one thing you can obviously do is, you know, in the least say that the, you know, whoever it might be is required to improve the premises. That would be highly unusual. But I've always been, I've never ceased to be amazed that that's what service charges do on a regular basis. And we've witnessed all the kind of costs of replacement of combustible cladding at the moment where I've seen you know, tenants in single bed flats being required to pay service charge bills of 156,000 and service charges have a, tend to have modern ones tend to have a catch-all provision. Uh, you can charge for things in the interest of good estate management. Um, and uh, I suppose the other way, I, I mentioned the case, um, 1984 uh, residential case called the Ellencroft and Tankersley Sawyer in the, in the, uh, the webinar, where being a short residential lease, the, the landlord has to be responsible for uh, repairs to the structure and exterior and the interior installations. Now in section 11 of the 85 Landlord and Tenant Acts, at the time of this case, it was in the 1961 Housing Act, section 32. Uh, and uh, the tenant had a basement flat. Uh, they had a damp proof course, but the damp proof course was actually above their flat, which is no good place for a damp proof course. It's useless and there was lots of damp. Um, and the damp was causing um, structural problems. It was permeating plasterwork and the plasterwork was flaking off and woodwork was, uh, was rotting away and the likes. And the court decided that the landlord might be inherently defective, uh, uh, something inherently defective that's caused the, 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 the problems, but the problems you know, are disrepair. And the best way of handling it is not just to do patch up works when it comes back again, but to do something about the damp proofing. And so that's another possibility. And that's that one. Okay, so should we move on to another case that I think you wanted to talk through, which is Mullaney and Maybourne Grange? Yeah, Mullaney, it sort of won't take too long to go through, actually. It's, um, it's a residential uh, case, actually, but it's equally applicable, sold, equally applicable to commercial premises, if not a bit more so. And it's again a word of warning. Um, I did touch upon it in the, in the course, but... Um, there's a case called Craighead and Homes for Islington, which I dealt more on. And it's, again, a good way, perhaps, of illustrating how you're not liable for improving premises under repairing covenants. It's an unusual background set of facts, actually, but... Uh, um, Maybourne Grange is... Uh, it's Maybourne Grange Management Company Limited, and Maybourne Grange is uh, a 12-storey block of flats in Croydon, East, East Croydon, Croydon. I don't know for sure, but I think it, it looks like it should be a sort of similar kind of age to the Camden Hill Towers, you know, the early 60s kind of block. And uh, the property was leased out uh, to Maybourne Grange. And then, uh, the, the, well, it was then, then there were various subleases for residential. I think the downstairs was actually, the, the, the lower floors were actually commercial uses, I recollect. It's just the upper floors residential. And uh, what uh, it was all about is one of the subtenants, uh, Mr. Mullaney, was objecting to the fact that well, they had windows. Uh, I suppose you would do in a twelve-story block of flats. But they they had windows, but the windows, uh, the wooden window frames, single glazed, um, rotting away. It's a nineteen eighty-six case. Um, and uh, the landlord thought to themselves that um, 
I'll replace them with more modern UPVC window frames um, and uh, also make them a bit more energy efficient. Obviously, that's the name of the game in this day and age by replacing them by double glazing. And so you replace those single glazed uh, wooden window frame rotting away with UPVC double glazing. His lease allowed him to uh, charge uh, for repairs and maintenance and also for the provision of services or amenities. I the tenant objected to the, having to pay the service charge. And the court decided that what you've done is not repair, you've improved in that particular case. You know, there's a thin line between the two, but you've improved the premises. Uh, the landlord also tried to argue that it was providing uh, services or amenities, you know, better energy efficiency. The court didn't accept that either. That's not the meaning of the clause. And so Mr. Mullaney uh, could question the reasonableness of the charge and uh, didn't have to pay for his new window frames and windows. What's the more general significance of this case? It's always a difficult one to, to again, talk about because these cases do depend on so much on the facts. Um, on the face of it, you know, if you want to improve a premises, unless the service charge, which modern ones often do, allow improvements to be charged for, then uh, it's probably best before you do the work to sit down with the tenants and discuss it and explain the benefits for everybody. Um, the, perhaps the other thing is the, the Craighead case, and we'll perhaps come back to this shortly. You know, there's a lot of situations nowadays where you can't sort of repair like for like. Have you got an example of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, because if the same set of facts as a Mullaney occurred today, which is basically what Craighead and Homes for Islington in 2010 was about, amongst other things, um, unless it was necessary for the appearance, uh, you know, because it's a listed building or in a conservation area, you couldn't replace the windows with single glazed windows because in April of 2002, uh, fencer regulations came in. Um, primarily about energy efficiency, you've got to replace them with things like tertiary glazing. So what happens basically if you can't repair the premises uh, like for like? And the suggestion there is that you probably could charge for improvements. And obviously the future, we're going to have who knows what, but uh, huge amounts of work that needs to be done in relation to improvements in relation to energy efficiency. And I wouldn't, as a tenant, want to add the cost of service charge on a cap. OK, thank you, Richard. And I think the final case you wanted to look at in detail was Sun Life Properties and Tiger Aspect Holdings. Yeah, it was a Court of Appeal confirmation of a High Court decision. The Court of Appeal decision was in, in December 2013. Um, it's a very tricky case. Uh, the Court of Appeal accepted as a fact, you know, what the first instance judge and said, but it's again a good illustration of when on occasion you might just be able to pin down tenants to actually improve the premises. And so it's a highly complicated set of facts. Um, Tiger Aspects Holding were the actual the guarantors to the tenants who were Tiger Aspects, who are a, um, you might have heard of them. They're broadcasters. Uh, <laughs> that kind of, we'll say broadcasters, yeah. Uh, I forget what the actual word is. The premises themselves were in, in about 1970 build uh, and uh, probably outlived its life expectancy by now. 
And it was it comprised a couple of uh, leases, 35 year leases from May of 1973 and May of 1974. It was actually in central London, it was Soho, it's on the edge of uh, corner of Soho Street and Soho Square. And um, Tiger Aspects actually took on a, an assignment of the lease uh, in, I think, around about the year 2000, and the Sun Life took an assignment of the reversion in 2006. And they got some life, the landlords, they started to get rather concerned about the state of this premises. Um, and uh, as much discussion there seems to have been. Uh, Tiger Aspects also wanted originally a renewal of the lease, but then decided they didn't want it. And uh, they well, vacated both these uh, several premises, um, you know, a whole row of properties. But they vacated um, in November 2008 and didn't do anything about uh, fulfilling repairing obligations and dilapidations. They seem to have done practically nothing. So the landlord moved in and started doing substantial amounts of work. He can't re-let the premises and there's been substantial amounts of work done on this property. And uh, some of this, on you know, first glance, seemed to constitute improvements. I mean, it had a sort of antiquated, as you can imagine, air conditioning system and a lift, which was you know, past its best, and uh, ventilation systems and heating systems, which were way out of date. And the landlord replaced them with brand new ones. They actually admitted some of this uh, was uh, an enhancement and improvement. But they then billed and wanted from the tenants uh, 2.172 million pounds and the tenant objected to this on various grounds, one obviously being you've improved the premises. Uh, but there's also something called uh, supersession as well. You know, a tenant might be responsible for repairs, but the landlord's going to have to do the premises up before they re-let them. I'd leave that to, uh, a bit more to the, you know, the sort of uh, dilapidation specialists. Um, at the end of the day, and they say it tended to be sort of more expert witnesses and between the lines, they, the judge, the High Court judge was not too happy with the way the tenants had behaved. But the landlord succeeded on most of the claim, even though they did bring up to modern standards, uh, as they'd have to do before they could repair. Um, they didn't get 2.172 million, they got 1,353,284. You've got to admire how exact and precise these people are. Uh, and uh, say so the tenant was trying to argue for about £400,000 of damages for disrepair. Did they quote any other previous cases as they did in Davstone? Yeah, they, they did. It's again one of those, it takes me back to my early 20s, these cases when I was an enthusiastic student. Um, and there is a case that is quoted in all the textbooks, but probably very little read. Uh, a case, uh, another court of appeal case from 1890 called Proudfoot and Heart, as to what uh, the level of repairs that you have to carry out is. It's um, Lord Justice Lopez was the judge involved. And famously, they said, well, they said a couple of things actually in Proudfoot. They said that uh, if you've got a a repairing covenant to keep in repair if at the beginning of the lease it's not in repair you have to actually put it in repair which is a bit of a pitfall for the draftsman um, but also they they, talk, they discussed what the standard of repair is and it's you know, it's quite a vague one but uh, it was good and tenantable repair 
and they said that you have regard to the age, character, and locality, uh, and you have to repair so as to make it reasonably fit for the occupation of a tenant of the class who would likely to be who would be likely to take it. This was 1890 when those kind of things mattered. And famously, a bit further on, in, in, they said, I think things have moved on a bit now, but they said uh, that uh, you know, the standard of repair in Grosvenor Square uh, is not necessarily the standard of repairs in Spitalfields in the East. Um, whether that's sort of when whether people would say that nowadays is another matter, but you certainly have regard to the age, character, and locality. Um, it wasn't discussed in the um, in the Tiger Aspect case, but there was a big big qualification to that a case called Calthorpe and Mikoska, which was uh, involved in another 1924 case. It was in London, and it was uh, the original lease was from 1825 a 95 year lease of a the house uh, and uh, the whole character of the environment had changed you know, during that 95 years. Obviously, leases tend to be, well, commercial leases tend to be much, much shorter than perhaps ever before at the moment. But um, they, um, the court made clear that it's the standard of repair at the time the lease is entered into and not here and now today when the lease comes to an end. So the whole environment might change. You know, you might have been some rural Italy, now you're middle, middle of an industrial estate or something, but your standard of repair goes back to the very beginning. And in the um, Tiger Aspects case, then um, they, you go back to the, the, you know, sort of the standard in 1970. You know, you can't get away with flock wallpaper and avocado bathroom suites now. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to bring it up to the standards of the ventilation and air conditioning systems of their day. You should have repaired as it went along. Because you didn't, you still, you know, you should be repairing, putting in a decent, whatever, 2013 system and not a decent early 70s system. If you have to take into account the class of the occupier, what factors might that include? The, um, I'm not sure so many judges would be so brutal. Spitalfields is quite trendy now anyway. <laughs> uh, but um, so it grew up in the square, I suppose. Um, I remember one case, there'd always been suggestions of this. There was a case from, I think it was 2003, Mason and Total Finer Elf. Uh, Total, the, you know, the French oil giant. It was actually a petrol station. They were tenants. And... Uh, the court seemed to, they, they, the lease had come to an end and they'd uh, left the roof in a perilous state of this petrol station. And they'd also left sort of, you know, potholes and likes in the forecourt. Uh, and the landlords uh, wanted something to, uh, to do something about it. And the court actually said that, you know, something like Total Oil, a, a huge you know, petrol uh, giant, um, should probably have to do more about repairing than somebody who's, you know, on the breadline. So it could even be those kind of things. Mm -hmm. They're also required to replace the roof, uh, thinking about what we mentioned previously, by a, a, you know, a more efficient, newer type, different roof. Okay. Up apart. Um, and that's it. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Thank you very much to everybody for listening, and we look forward to seeing you in our next episode of Unpacking the Case by David Jones-Bold.